Hello everyone and welcome to Questions You're Not Asking. My name is Tom French. And I'm Chris Morphew. Chris and I are writing a book together with responses to a bunch of absurd questions about God and the Bible that you're probably not asking and probably don't need an answer to. As we prepare to write the book, we are letting you in on our discussions. And this week we have a special guest, but before we meet our guest, Chris, how has your week been? Pretty good. I got a Kit Kat in the mail today, so everything's coming up Millhouse. <laughs> was it a special Kit Kat or just a normal one? Well, it was special to me. Some kids from church wrote me a letter and, and popped a Kit Kat in the envelope. So I've learned that Kit Kats travel pretty well through Australia Post. I don't know how long they take to arrive. I don't know when it was sent. Probably like on the first day of the pandemic. Sent in the last pandemic. The yeah. Spanish flu. Well, it still tasted good, <laughs> and I have not contracted any Spanish flu symptoms yet, so I think we're okay. How about you? What have you been up to? We had Father's Day. I had my very first Father's Day yesterday. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. One year down. Yeah. Tick. Well, one Father's Day down. We're only five months into baby life. but Oh, um, yeah, but it's like horse's birthday, right? Father's birthday? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's definitely how it works. Anyway, if I understand Father's Day, and I think I do, that is exactly how it works. I got a, I got a mug, which is very exciting. Great. But as a father, I specifically asked for undies, but they haven't turned up yet, thanks to Australia Post. So that may be the theme of today's intro, Australia Post. Can I, can I share you some questionable undies science that i read in a magazine (laughs) and depending how good you think it is you can cut this from the podcast or not some scientists believe was how they opened the Mm. sentence which is very promising some scientists believe that we should replace our underpants once a year which to me was just the most nonsense statistic because doesn't that entirely depend on how many pairs of underpants you own? Yeah. Like, if you own one pair of underpants, you should definitely replace them <laughs> if you haven't by the end of the year. But if you own 365 pairs of underpants, give them a second wear. Go wild. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Scientists. Myth busted. And these scientists are the same ones who are telling us about climate change and vaccines. Why should we believe them? Don't even know about undies. <laughs> well... It's been nice being allowed to be on the iTunes store, <laughs> but I guess we're we're going rogue. We're going to whatever Donald Trump's new social media platform is. Uh, Don Book, Face Trump. This really feels like the beginning of the end. What's our question for today, Tom? Uh, actually, we don't have a question for today. We have a guest for today. We asked him a lot of different questions. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. So... I think we do a little. Who is he? We do a little bit of an intro with him, but his name is Reverend Doctor Graham Stanton, and he works at Ridley College as the senior lecturer in practical theology and in the Centre for Children's and Youth Ministry. We will find out more about him in the podcast. But I've known Graham since I started at YouthWorks College when I signed up there as a punk eighteen-year-old to learn how to do youth ministry, and he was the dean of the college, he was very smart and helped me to know how to read the Bible. And then we sat down with him and asked him a lot of stupid questions. 
and had an absurd conversation with him, which was a lot of fun. But uh, it feels a little bit like maybe he he might have been a bit disappointed that he put in all this work to teach me how to be a smart, thoughtful, theologically informed youth minister. And I came back with, so do we poop in the new creation? And uh, yeah, it was good fun. Oh, it's a good question. It's yeah. Did did you enjoy the conversation? I sure bet I did. <laughs> if I when did we record this one? I remember it being fantastic. It was just a while yeah, ago. Yeah, it was. I think it was like in February. It was so good we did it twice. What? It was so good we did it twice. We talked to him twice. No, we, it's a two-part episode. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I thought we we like did we record it badly and have to redo it? Yeah, it's a two-parter. More specifically, it was so good it was two episodes long. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. So, so today you're going to hear the first part of our conversation with Graham, and then next week you're going to hear the second part. Which is a different part. We didn't <laughs> technically record it twice. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> should, we, should we have the conversation? I think that's a great idea, Tom. Let's do that. Tom, what's our question for today? <laughs> well, today, we do not have a question. For the first time ever, we have a guest. And our guest is... Well, we've had a guest before. Well, the first time we have it, it's just a guest who's going to answer a lot of questions. Our first time ever, except for the other guests we've had. Yeah. So, our guest today is Graham Stanton, Dr. Graham Stanton. Reverend Doctor. <laughs> Reverend Doctor, sorry. And he is the director for the Centre of Children's and Youth Ministry at Ridley College in Melbourne. And do you have other titles here? You're the lecturer in... Lecturer in Practical Theology. Yes. Coordinator of in-context learning. I think I'm also the director of field placement, but I'm not exactly sure whether I am, and I'm not exactly sure what that role is supposed to be responsible for. <laughs> don't let your so boss... That, don't let anybody else know that. Hear that. Tom, would you say our podcast is more practical or impractical theology? I was thinking about that on the way over, and I was thinking it's probably like hypothetical, impractical theology. But if it's any good, it's got to be practical in some way. That's what we're aiming for. Excellent. Well, I'll let you be the judge at the end, Graham, about whether it's any good or not. I'll give you a rating. All right. <laughs> yep, great. And so, Graham, what is like your? What do you fill your day with when you're here at Ridley? Well, most of the time I'm teaching students or preparing to teach students or responding to having taught students. So, marking assessments, oh. things like that. So, we're, we're a college. It's like a, a university for Christians. So, I teach in various areas here at the college. But then alongside that, I guess, again, like University for Christians, I write stuff and talk on podcasts. Yeah. You just had a book come out this recently. Yes, I did. I did. It was called, well, it is called Wide Awake in God's World. Ah. It's a ripper. <laughs> All these people are buying it, I think, because it's a really nice-looking cover. And they say don't judge a book by its cover. But you could judge this one by its cover because the cover is lovely. And it's it makes it, it look is very a good cover. Mm. Wow, that is a really good cover. Oh, look at that. Are you going to buy it now, Chris? Sure am. Look at that cover. How could I not? <laughs> I think we're talking to you today as the lecturer in practical theology. Sure. Because this is very practical, what we're doing. Yes. I've seen some of the questions you're going to ask me. <laughs> um 
what is practical theology as opposed to like, is there impractical theology or what? what Very good question. Very good question. Not the first time it's been asked. Practical theology is, it's a step beyond just applying theology. Like any good theology should be practical in the sense of it's got application in the real world. Practical theology is particularly thinking about the practices, the things that we do as Christians, as the church, sort of studying the things that we do and seeing what that implies about what we believe about God and the world. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, I think so. Like that- some, some people um, would study Christian texts, mm-hmm. like biblical theology, or study Christian writing or study Christian history, and we study Christian practices. Yeah. So if you're in a practical theology lecture, mm-hmm. uh, would someone come to you with a question like, we come to church regularly and we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. and we, we make sure that we sing eight songs and then we, <laughs> then we have a very long sermon yep. and, then, and then we go home. What do we think about that? Yeah, we'd spend time thinking about what do all those practices imply about what we think is really important about God and about what the church is and what human beings are like. Mm. So, say, for instance, you could no longer meet in person and you had to meet online in something like Zoom. What would that experience communicate to us about what's important? What could we do? What couldn't we do? What how, how do we understand God in this different sort of space? How does the practice change our understanding of God or our relationship with God, our experience of God? And does that then... Ha- now I think I'm getting into questions that we probably don't really need to go into in sure. the podcast. Yeah. But does that then have the the danger for those people who are not practical theologians mm. is that your the stuff that you do is teaching about who God is rather than say, you know, you go to the Bible and say the Bible teaches who who he is and then we work that through into our practice. Yes, yes. so we're not saying that our practice is the source of our theology, but it is a prompt for our theology and it does convey, well, it does shape the things that we believe. The things that we do shape what we believe as much as the things we believe shape what we do. Mm. And thinking about what we do drives us back to to reconsider what the Bible says, to, to look at it again. Because sometimes the things that we say we believe is is actually not as good as our actual practice. So to take a facetious example, you might have somebody who who says that only Anglicans are Christians, and that that might be their explicit theology. But then they go to a conference and they pray together with all the thousands of other people who are at this Christian conference, and you come away from that and you ask. Okay, well, what's better, their practice or their theology? Their theology says only Anglicans are Christian. Their practice is you've just prayed with a whole lot of other people and you've called upon God as Father together with thousands of other people, many of whom aren't Anglicans. So that experience should make you stop and think, now, hang on, I've got to reconsider my theology. So I go back to the Bible and read the Bible and think, oh, actually, no, there's nothing in the Bible here that says that only Anglicans are Christian. And there's a lot of here in the Bible about people who pray together, even though they might disagree on, you know, some secondary or debatable matters. And so they change their theology because their practice has helped them see something different in Scripture. Hmm. So is the thought that your practice is your actual theology and then... Your like head theology is just what you say your theology is. Well, we we talk about explicit and implicit theology, or your 
confessed theology and your practiced theology or lived theology. Mm. And the thing is that we want we want them to be uh, integrated. We want them to be to be the same, not intention, not fighting against one another. Mm. But but often, yeah, there, there are things that we might say that we believe, but our practice says otherwise. You know, like when people stand up in church and they say with a deadpan face, I'm really excited to be here today. <laughs> and I think, mm, I'm not sure that your practice really is saying the same thing as what your words are saying. Or, or when you have, you know, Christians that say the gospel is all about God's love for the whole world and we really need to be loving to everybody. But the only people who I ever talk to who are my friends are people who go to my church. Mm. I don't know the names of my neighbors. And I, I don't engage with anybody who is not a Christian. So what do you really believe? Do you believe that the church is for the whole world or do you just say it is? Mm. And so uh, which of those things is more faithful to what God has revealed of himself in the scriptures? Well, being for the whole world, well, maybe we need to revise our practice. Yeah. Alternatively, you know, if the praying with other Christians is a thing that you do, but you say that only Anglicans are Christian, then you've got to change your stated explicit theology to be in line with scripture and sometimes both are wrong you know hmm. i can't wait to see how this applies to Ailey. <laughs> well then we should get into it then <laughs> excellent <laughs> all right so let's let's start off with question number one that's by the way that's i find myself saying that not just in this context but in many like I, if i had a dollar for every time i'd said man i can't wait to see how this applies to aliens i'd be a very rich man but that's probably neither here nor there <laughs> So what we're going to do with Graham today is we're going to ask him a bunch of our favorite questions. I think mostly, or maybe all from season one. No, we've got at least one or two season two ones in here, but we're going to ask him the questions. And we're going to hear what he has to, what he thoughts he has as a professional theologian. And uh, we'll see what comes out. So the first question that we have for you is if time travel is invented is going back to Bible times an act of devotion or dangerous stupidity? I love this question because I love time travel. Okay, I've often thought if I could go to any period of world history, I would love to be in the garden on resurrection morning and just watch it happen because I think that would be awesome. You know, So, so I have thought about this a, a little bit. But as I thought about it a bit more, I asked the question, well, well, I'd say it wouldn't make anything better, right? Okay. So if I could go back to Bible times, like I couldn't make things turn out better than the way they did, you know, mm -hmm. as if I could be a better disciple. I'd be, I'd be more faithful or, <laughs> you know, if I could get in there, I'll infiltrate the 12 and then I could convince Peter, no, 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 don't deny Jesus. He really is the Messiah. And I could tell Thomas, you know, don't be so worried and, and uh, all those things. Like I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I would be as limited in my perspective as taken over by my own fears and concerns as the disciples were. Mm. Yeah. So mm. I couldn't, I couldn't do a better job if I went back. So if that's my desire, I could go back in time and I could make the church better. Dangerous stupidity. And then I also think if I, if I'm thinking, if I could go back in time, if I could actually see Jesus, then I would be able to come back and just be such a better Christian. 
Mm. You know, because then I would have been there on resurrection morning. And when people say, you know, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And I say, you bet he did, because I was there just last week. I ducked back and I had a look and it was amazing. <laughs> and now I'm going to be such a better Christian. And that's not true either. It, it, it wouldn't make a difference because two things, you know, Jesus said, to Thomas in John 20, you know, blessed are you who see and believe, but but blessed are those also who believe who don't see. So the blessing of God comes to us in faith. Mm. And then that whole experience, if I'm relying on just my experience, then I'm going to need to keep on recreating that experience to strengthen my devotion. Mm. And actually what I need to do is to strengthen my faith, my trust. And think about it like this. If if going back and, and seeing concrete evidence with my own eyes of Jesus would convince me of God's love for me and therefore I'd follow him with, you know, all of my life with more, you know, vigor and enthusiasm. It's sort of like saying, oh, if if my wife just bought me, you know, expensive electronic gifts, that, that speaks to me of her love for me. <laughs> it does. It does. You know, I think that's my love language, <laughs> expensive electronic gifts. You know? So you get something like that for Christmas and you think, oh, my wife really loves me. But then eventually it, it wears out or the memory of that gift sort of fades and I need another gift to, to prove to me that she really loves me. In the end, that's not going to be a great relationship. My relationship would be stronger if I just trust the promise that she says, yes, I love you, the same way that God has made that promise to me. So you might be stuck constantly traveling back to to see yeah, Jesus. Totally. Yeah. You'd be no use in your present time. That's right. So it wouldn't make it better. I, I'd still, I wouldn't turn down the opportunity if, if it came up just to go back and witness it. I think it'd be awesome. But I don't think it'd make things better. I couldn't make things better in the past and going back to the past wouldn't make things better for the present. What if you went back and got a selfie with him right as he stepped out of the tomb? Then you wouldn't have to go back. You could just look at your phone and be like, oh, yeah. It's true. But, well, the other thing that I think is better, like Jesus says it's better that he goes away in John 16. Mm. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. So, like, I sort of like the idea, but I've got to trust Jesus that it is better, that that what I have, this this constant inner testimony of the Spirit, is is actually better hmm. because that's a present that's a present thing because even the selfie is a reminder of what it was like then i can look at photos of times that i've been with friends and that have been great and i can look at that and think oh wasn't that a great time but still have that question would they would they answer my call if i rang them today you know do they still do they still think i'm a, i'm a decent person you know i guess you could argue that if you're a christian every selfie is a selfie with the holy spirit Sure, sure. So why do you need a, a special go-back-in-time selfie with, with Jesus physically? Again, I'd say if, if, I had a, if I had a selfie with Jesus, it would be on the wall. People would be looking at it. But would that, would that make my relationship with God so much better than it is now? I, I've got to believe that it's not because God says that he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Mm. And, and well, that everything must be what, what we have, you know. And what we have is the, the written account of uh, Jesus and the apostles and, and the Old Testament believers. We have the inner testimony of the Spirit. We have the encouragement of godly friends. We have the, the momentum that comes from living a godly life. And we have the support of angels. And those things are everything that we need 
for life and godliness. Mm. And if selfies with Jesus was was going to be the key that would make the difference, God would have given it to us by now. And I guess the skeptics would all say it was Photoshop well, anyway, so it's yeah, that's back right. to square one. A deep fake. Can I ask a question that's not quite on topic but is in the same realm? Do you think when you went back to get a selfie with Jesus and you pulled out your phone, Jesus would say, what the heck is that? Or would he be like, oh, yeah, it's the iPhone. That's that's coming. <laughs> no, he would say, what the heck is that? Do you think the Holy Spirit would be like, that's an iPhone? The Holy Spirit would, would I think, know that it's an iPhone. I'm not sure the Holy Spirit would have told Jesus it's an iPhone. <laughs> like, think about Jesus. Like, like, Jesus was a real human being. I often use the, the example of Batman or Superman. You know, is Jesus, what sort of superhero is Jesus? Is he like Superman in that he just comes from somewhere else? So he's totally different. And he is just able to do things that no ordinary human being is able to do. Or is he like Batman? He is, he is essentially a human being just like you and me. He's just more kitted out. You know, he just does it better. Because he's really rich, you know, and everything else. Okay, and I think Jesus as a human being is much more like Batman than Superman, because he is he is one of us. Mm. You know? So Jesus learned obedience. Hebrews five says he he grew as a human being. Jesus at one point, the human being that we know as Jesus, had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to control his sphincter. His anal sphincter. Jesus developed those things. And I think he also developed his understanding of his own identity. And I think Jesus believed that he would rise again after death the same way that I believe I will be raised to life after death and on the day of resurrection. Mm. I think the quality of his belief and his faith, the faith that he took to the cross is the same faith that I'm encouraged to have as I face life and death and all the uncertainty in between. Which adds such a depth, I think, to the whole fact that he went to the cross in the first place. Because if he's just kind of, yep, yep, I know, yeah, it's fine, I'm going to do it all myself anyway and I'm going to be back and it's all good, then like it's there's almost not less at stake, but maybe kind of less at stake. But if he really is like doing it the way we would have to do it if we were going to trust God with something that big. Yeah. Like, I think it just shines an even greater light on the depths of Jesus' love for us. I think that's really cool. I haven't thought about that before. It being an act of faith going to the cross. Mm. That's, yeah, and like, I, I, like I contemplate, how did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? And obviously, as he grew up, Mary, well, we know that Mary treasured the things of mm. the incarnation in her heart. Now, of course, at some point, Mary would have shared those stories with her son. You know, I guess at some point, Jesus says, how come all the other kids get in trouble and I don't? You know, <laughs> maybe that conversation came up. But there's, I sense that Jesus, as he read the scriptures, which he, he would have as a faithful Jewish boy, and we see from his practice in the temple as a, as a young boy, as you read the scriptures, I imagine that there's that sense of, oh, hang on, that that sounds like me. That's mm. that's sort of my experience. I think that's me. And what mum says and what I'm sensing I'm hearing from God the Father, that's all coming together. That's that's me. I just want to keep going with this, but yeah, sure. we will be stuck 
yeah. just on this one. So we should move on yeah. to the next of our important questions. So next on the list, do we poop in the new creation? Absolutely, yes. Like why on earth not? Well, because maybe we are so resurrected that our new resurrection bodies are so good at making use of everything that we ingest that it that you know they're totally efficient and so we have nothing left to poop mm-hmm. possibly but poop is quite useful so actually i read an article in uh, time magazine from 2015 they estimated that the value of the world's annual excrement human excrement was about nine and a half billion us dollars that if you could convert all human excrement into energy or fertilizer then it becomes hugely valuable poop industry poop industry absolutely so that's like a bit more than a dollar each yeah 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 so if i saved all mine up for a year you get a buck <laughs> would i give me a dollar for a buck these days a, a mcdonald's cone are they still a buck maybe not yeah. Two oh, of them, there I you think. go. You I can buy one for a friend, and then poop it out. What if I took? What if I took my poop directly to McDonald's? <laughs> I just brought in a big skip bin or something, and I was like, "Hey, I've got this New York Times article to show less, you." Less likely. And at the end of it, you're going to give me two ice. Creams. Less likely. So you've got to separate it out. So, so there's water, there's methane, and then when you take the water and methane out, what you've got left in terms of your solid poo, you can dry out, and it, apparently it's it's combustible like coal. And then in your urine, there's um, all sorts of nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen and whatever. Yeah. Here's my thought. The reason that poo is so harmful is when it gets in your drinking water. Mm. And sadly, for billions of human beings, that's the life that we've condemned them to because they're crammed into the areas that are, you know, there's too many of them and there's not good sewage and everything else like that. So in the new creation, there's going to be no slums and there's going to be enough toilets to go around. So Mm. let's let's say that. Possibly we're all going to just consume just the right amount of food that we need. Although the Bible's got images of feasting and partying, so it sounds like more than just your, you know, your bare minimum. But maybe that's one of the ways that the new creation is going to be powered. Maybe that's how electricity is generated. <laughs> one of the ways electricity is generated is by using our poop properly. Mm. I think we should um, write a book called Poo Creation, <laughs> and it's all about harnessing the power of our poo. Lots of possibilities. There's a verse in, in Revelation chapter 21, so right at the end of the Bible, verse 24, 26, um, talks about the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem, okay, into, into God's new city. Now, it's not exactly clear what the, the writer means by the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the city. It could simply mean that human beings and human kings will come and praise Jesus on the last day. That certainly will be the case. But other lines of interpretation have said that uh, this sort of suggests that it's something about a reference to the very best of human culture will continue to bless the new creation to come. That there's a level of continuity between now and and then. Mm. And so people have talked about this in relation to, say, architecture. You know, the very best of human architecture is 
is going to be either renewed in the in the new creation or some some sort of continuity there. And, and think about it in terms of energy generation. Presumably we'll have electricity, I guess, in the new creation. Certainly if Jesus was to come back now, then we would assume there's electricity. How are we going to generate electricity? Well, there are some really clever things that human beings have worked out of how to generate electricity. There are lots of dumb things humans have done to generate electricity. <laughs> so I suspect that burning fossil fuels is not going to be part of the new creation. And I suspect nuclear energy that results in, you know, contaminated waste for thousands of years to come. I can't see how that is the best of human achievement. But maybe harnessing poo, maybe that's going to be one of the things. Yeah. Maybe that's going to be some of the glory right. that the yeah. nations bring yeah. in. Yeah. In and I guess what it means is, my, the implication of that for me is that if you're an environmental scientist or if you're a, like an energy engineer type person, then thinking about how to more effectively use human poo than A, putting it into the drinking water so people get sick or flushing it into the ocean so the fish eat it, maybe there's a better thing that we can do with it. Mm. So you'll still have a job in the new creation if you're an environmental scientist. And- yeah, yeah. I'm suspecting that doctors and theologians are going to be out of work. Get on the heaven doll. Hmm. Something else that I would... This is like semi-related, not poop-related, but new creation-related. Man, some people are going to have a real learning curve in terms of technology when we come back. <laughs> like, think about, you know, never mind... Uh-huh. Jesus and the iPhone. Think about like Abraham and just the world as it is. I wonder how that's all going to pan out. And like maybe us as well, you know, if Jesus doesn't come back for another few thousand years. Yeah, true. It's going to be like Fry waking up from the cryo chamber in Futurama and suddenly has to come to grips with <laughs> like everything being completely upside down to him. That is assuming that soul sleep is the is what happens to us between death and the day of resurrection. So that's a theory. But another theory is that believers, those who are redeemed, are in some kind of disembodied state in the presence of God. and mm. Getting updates on the technology. Yeah, aware of the presence of time, knowing yeah. what's going on, seeing it all, enjoying it, sort of like the pre-party. Mm-hmm. Like it's better than being here, but not as good as the what the last day is going to be. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about being found naked, which is like without a body, mm. or living in our our tent, our earthly tent, that's our our earthly body, or having our an eternal dwelling, that's our resurrection mm. body. But then Paul does speak about being away from the body and at home with the Lord, which seems to be the step in between. Yeah, and I guess I kind of assume that in that scenario I'd be too busy you know, enjoying being with Jesus to worry about the next, you know, iOS update or whatever. True, true. Uh, I doubt that that's the number one thing on their agenda. But I reckon they, they probably are interested in the growth of the church, the spread yeah. of the gospel. You yeah. Know? The angels long to look into the things that we know. Now, maybe that means they're just constantly contemplating Jesus in his ascended glory. But, but I'm not sure where I'm basing this on rather than just a wistful <laughs> hunch. Mm. Do, you, do you think if the angels are long to look into what, like what we experience of Jesus, mm. do you reckon that, like in the new creation or in the 
you know, you're home with the Lord at the moment. Mm. There are angels pulling people aside saying, hey, what can you tell me about Jesus? What can you tell me? I don't get to know. What do you tell me? I'm like, can't tell you, mate. I reckon they know who Jesus is. So that content knowledge of Jesus, I think they would know. I think it's the, that whole experience of being indwelt by the Spirit and given that the, the freedom of having an influence in the world in the name of Christ. I think that sort of responsibility mm. It, it mm. doesn't seem to be something that belongs to the angels the same way it belongs to us. Do the angels ever get told the humans long to be like you and be a bit awesome they probably do and they probably think it's a bit daft <laughs> they probably giggle and think oh yeah it's again or, or they say to jesus again there's another sign of why i wouldn't chosen them you know <laughs> yeah these guys come on you know do you get that that sense you know after what what happened the day after the ascension you know so jesus comes back and there's this great party and he comes on the clouds to heaven and there's a celebration and then the angels sort of sit him down and say okay jesus what's the plan like what are you going to do next and he says, well, I've got 12 guys, 11 of them are left, and there's a bunch of women. <laughs> and the angels are saying, well, hang on, that's, that's, that can't be the plan. That's not a good plan. We know what human beings are like. Jesus says, no, 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 trust me. I know what I'm doing. It is. <laughs> I've got I the mean, spirit. It's I've a got the- very interesting plan. Like even today, I'm just like, all right, yeah. I'm glad it is what it is, but... Yeah. 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 You know, Paul says in Ephesians that now through the church, the glory of God has been proclaimed to the powers in the heavenly places. Mm. I think, oh, God, surely there was a better plan. Like, I've been to church. (laughs) (laughs) Not now through the church service, I guess. But even in that, you know, that people come together in the name of Jesus and they hear the scriptures. They listen to the scriptures taught and applied and they pray and they sing praises. Off key, they make mistakes, they don't apply things and they've got, they've got you know, clicks and factions. True. But human beings are doing all of these things and that is extraordinary, is what, is what God tells us. And it displays God's power because it's, it's only God that can bring this thing together and it's only God that can sustain this thing over thousands of years. Mm. It's pretty astonishing, really. And that helps me stop whinging about the church (laughs) and helps me stay committed to working for her good and her best. Yeah, yeah. Got to keep keep proclaiming the glory. Yeah. Are you ready for the next question? Yeah, go for it. All right. If Jesus was an identical twin, would they both have been the Messiah? I love this. You know the book Damascus by Christian Solkis? He actually writes the story about Thomas, saying that Thomas is Jesus' identical twin. There's absolutely no historical uh, evidence that that was the case. Thomas was called the twin, but somebody else's twin, not Jesus' twin. Anyway, I think no, because I think it's the categories that the incarnation uses a virgin birth, but the virgin birth doesn't imply the incarnation. Virgin birth is a subset of incarnation. The virgin birth can also imply that you are strong in the force. It can, yes, yes. Or that you're Alexander the Great. Oh, I reportedly, I think, was it him? There was some Roman story of somebody who was a virgin birth. Maybe not like Alexander. I'm definitely not a historian. <laughs> but there's been lots of stories about virgin births. But the incarnation is the mo- more significant thing. 
So God, um, Father, Son, Spirit, decided, chose, and worked that the second member of the Trinity, the Son, would become human. And part of the mechanism of that was a virgin birth. But that decision of God, of uh, incarnation, is fundamentally what makes Jesus the Messiah. So the second twin, the non-Jesus twin, Mm -hmm. would have the same DNA as Jesus, but not the same divine incarnation as Jesus. Presumably. He'd look great, but he'd be like the rest of us. <laughs> Except that Isaiah 53, that prophecy says that Jesus <laughs> was ugly. <laughs> he'd, he'd, look, he'd look morally great. <laughs> Except he... Jesus might have, he, he would have different frame lines. Oh, yeah. Would he have, do you think Jesus' identical twin would dress in the same identical white robe with the blue sash that Jesus always wore? Or do you think Mary would have put him in a different sash so that people could tell them apart? Yeah, really depends on what their parenting strategy was. But I suspect if I was Jesus' identical twin, well, I don't know. I had friends who were identical twins. They went to different high schools, and then every now and then they would swap uniforms and go to each other's school (laughs) and get each other in trouble for the day. I'm not sure whether Jesus' brother would do that. But he'd maybe uh, like to. He probably would like to. Imagine being Jesus' brother and people kept coming to you for healings and for advice and for stuff and you're just like, yeah, sorry. I feel like you'd just be disappointing people over and over again. And how many times were you, you know, your mum and your relatives saying, why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> oh, but if you are Jesus' identical twin, you also, if you know the prophecies and Jesus said, you know, I'm going to be put on trial, I'm going to be killed, you'd be like, I'm dressing completely different from him. I'm, I'm going to shave my head. I'm going to get rid of the beard. I want people to be very sure that I am not my brother because yeah, yeah. I want to live a long and healthy life. Yeah, yeah. Well, James, you know, I mean, James, the leader of the church in, in Acts, is Jesus' brother, same mother. Um, mm. Presumably, Joseph was his father, biological father. And, for you know, we know that during the Gospels, Jesus' brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. So they didn't want to identify with him. Obviously, things uh, were different after the resurrection. Yeah. Everything's different after the resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> Should we maybe skip down the list to our other Jesus DNA-related question? If Jesus took a DNA test to see who his parents were, what would the results come back as? Yeah. Well, they've got to be very much like Mary. So, well, obviously, yes, Mary is his mother, physically you know, so all, all of those connections are there. But he can't be a clone because he's male. So he has to have had a Y chromosome from somewhere. So the only two options are God copied a Y chromosome from somebody else. So maybe from Mary's dad, mm-hmm. possibly. Or he just created a Y chromosome. Or he copied a Y chromosome from somebody else, like somebody living in Africa, just... Here's one. I can I can copy this. Or he made a brand new one. Hmm. Are you familiar with the work of one Ron Wyatt? No. Oh, yes. So when we did our episode on this, the majority of our conversation was going down a rabbit hole. Uh, he's an amateur archaeologist whose finds have been mostly discredited by all actual 
Yeah. Historian. Sounds like a great guy to have at a party. Look, he claims that he found some of Jesus' blood that had mm. dripped down, if I recall correctly, through the earthquake crack under the cross into an underground cavern containing the Ark of the Covenant. And so, mm. when he found that cavern, he found the spots of blood on the Ark and he um, rehydrated them. And he figured out that Jesus had exclusively Mary's DNA plus one Y chromosome. Right. So, I, what do you make of that? Conclusive. But And didn't it, it only had, he had 24, like he had 23 chromosomes. Mm. Plus a Y. Plus a Y. So, there wasn't like 23 pairs. There was only 23 oh. non-paired chromosomes. I'm just saying you laid out a couple of options and I just wanted to, you know, while we're canvassing the options, I just wanted to throw that one out there and, and see what you thought. Well, I think I, I'm no geneticist, but I thought you had to have pairs to be a human. I'm not sure what happens if you only have half a DNA strand. I don't think, I don't think that works. Well, obviously, if, if Jesus had it, it worked. Yeah, except that Jesus is fully human like us. <laughs> oh, yeah, so he has to point. have a, a complete DNA strand. Like us. Mm. So, yes, there had to be a Y chromosome. He couldn't have been male without one. And he couldn't have got that from his mother because she doesn't have one. So, it had to come from somewhere. That's all I can say. He also found Noah's Ark, allegedly, which would make him, I think, the <laughs> yeah. only archaeologist to discover both of those biblical arcs. Both arcs. Most, most, Double arcs. Most of them, you know, hone in on Ten one or the other. But this guy's yeah, a real yeah. generalist. It's, it's mm. exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, I mean, in the mid, mid, Middle Ages, there was a whole stack of, you know, Jesus' blood roaming around Europe. By itself? Enough, they say there were enough, well, in little, you know, <laughs> wandering around, it became a person. No, in little vials that people would carry around and worship. There were like bits of the pieces of splinters of wood from the true cross, enough to build the ark, probably. If they hadn't turned that into like, like things that they would sell to people and they'd kept it together, we could still have a full cross or a full mm. vi- like full thing of Jesus' blood, like mm-hmm. like people looting the the pyramids. We could have yeah. kept kept the cross in Israel and not it would have been in the it. British Museum by now. I don't know if we solved did we solve it? <laughs> yeah. I reckon that one's done. So you but so you don't think though that Jesus' DNA, like half of it was like perfect, and the other half was Mary's. No, well, yeah, because I, sinful nature, I, I don't think is just a biological thing. Mm. So I think part of the argument comes there that you know, um, if Jesus inherited Mary's DNA, then she, he's inheriting a sinful nature. Mm. I mean, a there is just so much more to human consciousness than mere biology. There is so much going on in the brain that we just don't understand. How do we get a self out of this, you know, lump of biological matter? And then, you know, so we don't understand that. The thought that we'd be able to understand the incarnation is just, I mean, that's a bridge too far. Ah, so you're leaving it in mystery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot, there are far, far more things that need to be left in mystery than, than, you know, teased apart on a scientific bench. Makes life more interesting. Yeah, well, we have less of a podcast. Maybe. Doesn't stop you talking about it, though. I do feel like a number of our episodes we've ended with, yeah, I don't know, eh? 
So maybe it's not like <laughs> yeah, we can still yeah. talk for a long time. I think we've established yeah, without yeah. having to land anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Like the the whole exploration of mystery and and the the digging around it is like I think that's good. Just because it's mystery doesn't mean you've got to back away and don't say anything more about it. It's like yeah, the incarnation is a mystery, so you can plumb the depths of this forever. Because mm. you're because you're not going to solve it. Yeah. So you can just yeah, keep yeah. talking about it. Yeah. As long as we don't, you know, commit ourselves to something and say, okay, well, I'm going to say it's going to be this, and then that just locks down the options and we back ourselves into a corner. Mm. But what if? So when you think about Jesus' humanity and how did he grow in his understanding and knowledge, you know, and then what are the implications of that for understanding the nature of humanity and of faith and of faithfulness and obedience to God and so on? Do you reckon God did a bit of, like, wherever the male DNA came from the like the other half the dna do you reckon he was like well he's gonna need a pretty good brain so i'll make sure there's like good memory good people skills smart guy you know to whatever extent that stuff is nature rather than nurture do you reckon he like manipulated it to give jesus the qualities he need? like i i mean i i know it's not the same as this but you know how they talk about like eventually you're going to be able to get into your unborn baby's DNA and be like, well, I want blonde hair and I want this and I want that. Do you reckon God the Father did with Jesus and kind of cherry picked the bits? I think I think what we what we know about brain development is that there is so much more about the nurture of the human brain than it is about the the DNA structure. Your brain is changing so much mm. and affected by the environment. But, but I, I would say the other thing is you've got to hesitate before saying that the qualities that make Jesus the Messiah are the qualities that would make somebody a, a superstar in our culture today. Mm. You know? We sort of assume, oh, Jesus, he must have been really smart. He must have been really, you know, outgoing and able to relate to people. Well, I don't know. He might have been really prickly. He might have been... <laughs> You know, he might have been quite blunt. I mean, there are some situations where you kind of go, a person in today's culture, if they responded like that, you'd be like, they need to develop their EQ a little bit. But, you know, we give Jesus a pass because he's God. He knows what he's doing. (laughs) I mean, Jesus Jesus loved people. Um, Jesus was able to read and, and understand the scriptures and he was able to argue persuasively. But I don't think any of that implies that he was, you know, great at parties or that he was... Except for know, the wine. Good at maths. <laughs> <laughs> but why is he out there? Why is he out there talking to the servants and not sort of in the yeah. middle of the party leading karaoke? You oh. Know? Mm. oh, yeah, good point. I'd be that. I'd I'd be out there with the servants. I'm more like Jesus than I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to have to leave it there because, as you heard at the beginning, this is a two-parter. So good, we did it once, but extensively. Yeah. So that was Reverend Doctor Graham Stanton from Ridley College. We really like putting in everyone's titles here. I got to wait till I get a title, and then you can use it. On me. If you're a reverend doctor, does that mean you can also practice medicine, but only to a, like, 2,000-year-old level of technology? I think it means you're a witch doctor. Oh, I thought 
being a witch and a reverend were opposites. Oh yeah. <laughs> if you become if you become a witch and you are a reverend, does it cancel it out and you just don't have any title at all? I think you're you're stripped of both titles and you go and become an accountant. <laughs> All right, I'll remember that if ever I become a reverend or a witch and then think of doing the next bit. Anyway, so the point is, if you want to find more from Graham, you can go to Ridley College's website. They're going to be so happy with this uh, endorsement. Uh, go to ridley.edu.au and you can find out more about uh, signing up there to learn online. They have some excellent online courses. I've even done some of them. Uh, you can do everything from like uh, certificate level stuff where you get trained in youth ministry or children's ministry or a bunch of other stuff responding to domestic violence, overview of the Bible. You can go all the way up to like a doctorate. So you can become a doctor, but not a witch doctor. And I think they guarantee across their whole teaching faculty, zero witches. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't know if they've specifically stated that, but I, in my time there, I haven't seen a single Hermione Granger. Did you throw all the faculty in the water to see if they float or sink, though? They all floated. Yeah, I tried that. Is that the good one or the bad one? I don't remember. Oh, no, actually, a witch, <laughs> a witch floats. Great. <laughs> because cause, cause wood floats and so do ducks. And so, if they weigh the same as a duck, they're a witch. Do you do you do you know what I'm referencing there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. You just had this look on your face, like I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have only a small amount of idea what's going on right now, but that part wasn't the part that was the most questionable part of what we've talked about. I'm actually doing study at Ridley College until this podcast gets released, and then that will be the end of my time there. But let me thoroughly endorse the college to you while I'm still a student. Chris, if people want to find more from you, uh, where can they get it? Well, yeah, now that we've established our credentials as um, serious thinkers, work taking seriously. If you want to find out about my books, you can go to chrismorphew.com. Guaranteed no witches. And if you want to see my YouTube videos, you can look up Chris Morphew on YouTube. Also guaranteed no witches. So that's good. How about you, Tom? Yeah, if you want to find out more from me, you can head to tomfrench.com.au where you can find my books and all the rest of my stuff. Or if you Follow me on Facebook or Instagram, which is at TW French. You can get a free sample of my new book, A Dozen Disappointing Disciples, which I don't think it has any witches in it, but definitely has some Harry Potter references. So that should keep everyone happy or unhappy, depending who they are. So there you are. That's our stuff. We'll be back Fantastic. next week with the second half of this conversation with Graham. It's been fun. It sure has. See you, Tom. Bye. Bye.